This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications for the ACLU of PA. Happy 420! The annual cannabis holiday is upon us, and as many have noted, this year it's 420 for the entire month of April. For this episode, I talked with attorney Patrick Nightingale. Patrick has a criminal defense practice, is the executive director of Normal's Pittsburgh chapter, and is a former prosecutor in the Allegheny County DA's office. In our conversation, Patrick talks about the effectiveness of Pennsylvania's medical marijuana law, the top policy priorities for reformers, and the progress the movement has made toward full legalization. Also note that on Monday, National ACLU released a new report called A Tale of Two Countries, Racially Targeted Arrests in the Era of Marijuana Reform. The report analyzes arrest data for marijuana possession from around the country, including in Pennsylvania. The report finds that black people in Pennsylvania are three times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people, based on data from 2018. It also found that 56 of the Commonwealth's 67 counties have racial disparities in arrests that are higher than the national rate. Nationally, black people are 3.64 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people, despite survey data that consistently shows that cannabis consumption is virtually the same across all races. We will include a link to that report in the show notes. So let's hear from Patrick Nightingale. This conversation was recorded on February 12th. So, Patrick, you're a defense attorney, you're a former prosecutor, you're an advocate for reforming marijuana laws. From where you sit, you know, you're involved in your daily practice. What is the state of the marijuana law right now in Pennsylvania? What are you seeing day-to-day in your practice? Uh, What I'm seeing day-to-day is a lot of confusion about the uh, parameters of our medical marijuana law. What are patients allowed to do? What are they not allowed to do? Uh, There's a lot of employment-related issues. I'm very glad that our statute has employment discrimination language in it. However, what our statute does not have is any private uh, right of action, a private cause of action, Mm -hmm. and no fee shifting available. So from what I've seen so far, let's say, you know, you're working a $20 an hour job, you're a medical cannabis patient, and you get terminated. Does the law protect you? It has anti-discrimination language in it, but without a fee-shifting provision, without you know, the award of attorney's fees, you're going to have to pay a lawyer out of pocket in order to get that lawyer to uh, uh, take on that litigation. Whereas in your typical, like let's say, American with the Disabilities Act claim, there would be an award of uh, attorney's fees if the plaintiff is uh, successful. Okay. So we have this anti-discrimination language, which is nice and it's important, but it is not all that easy for an employee or a potential employee who may have been discriminated against to avail themselves of the courts if they don't have the ability to fund their own litigation. Is that the same or is it different from the Pennsylvania Human Relations Act? Like, Let's say you were discriminated against because of your gender um, and you bring a case. Is, is the fee situation different there in that situation? I, I think you could bring a claim under the uh, Pennsylvania Human Relations Act, okay. but 
from my global perch, the employment attorneys that I have referred people to have all told me, you know, yeah, it looks like a good case, but they can't afford, and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to recoup um, uh, attorney's fees at the end of the day, so I had to charge an hourly hourly fee. Okay, so if somebody's in that situation, they're being discriminated against because they're a medical marijuana patient, they would either have to be able to pay an attorney uh, or have you know a volunteer attorney or maybe a public interest organization be willing to take on the case. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, okay. right now. And uh, the lawsuit that's pending, I think, in uh, in the Western District, uh, in federal court, that was filed on behalf of a patient. Uh, from what I saw, that was a patient who uh, lost a very you know good paying job. So you know may ha- have been in a better position to fund their own litigation. But I don't know. That attorney may very well have taken that case. Uh, um, without requiring the prepayment of fees. Okay. So you mentioned the fact that there is some confusion about the law for patients generally with the Medical Marijuana Act. You were at the state capitol in Harrisburg uh, just recently. You were advocating with a, a group of folks for various reforms to marijuana policy, particularly as it relates to the Medical Marijuana Act. Um, and as I recall, I was there. One of the things that you spent a bulk of your time talking about when you were at the podium was Pennsylvania's zero-tolerance DUI law. Can you explain what that means and what has to change? Yes. In Pennsylvania, uh, in 2004, our uh, driving under the influence uh, law was amended. And it changed uh, driving under the influence of controlled substances. Uh, And what it now says is that if an individual has any amount, any detectable amount of a Schedule I controlled substance or its metabolites, that that individual is uh, guilty of driving under the influence of, uh, of a controlled substance. The problem that we have here is that uh, cannabis, THC, metabolizes very, very slowly out of the blood. Mm-hmm. Delta-9 THC, which is the psychoactive uh, chemical, it's what gets you high, uh, onsets very quickly and dissipates very quickly and begins metabolizing into hydroxy-THC, which is its psychoactive uh, metabolite, and then carboxy-THC, which it's the non-psychoactive metabolite. And it's that non-psychoactive metabolite, carboxy-THC, which can be detected in the blood for hours, days, weeks, or in the case of a heavy user, even months Mm. after uh, consumption. So what that practically means for Pennsylvania patients who are using medical cannabis, they are under our zero tolerance law, DUI 24-7-365. Proof of impairment is not required if the individual has a metabolite of a Schedule I controlled substance in their blood. So a Pennsylvania patient can get a DUI next week for the medical cannabis that they consume today. And if a patient is consuming uh, medical cannabis on a daily basis, then they, uh, for all intents and purposes, are you know, constantly under threat of, uh, of DUI. And are you seeing cases like that? Yes. Um, I'm seeing repeated cases, especially coming out of uh, Pennsylvania State Police. One barracks around here, uh, I think, leads the entire state in cannabis uh, DUIs. Wow. Uh, The only training Pennsylvania State Police have uh, received about our medical cannabis program is how better to uh, bust uh, drivers with the DRE protocol, uh, drug recognition experts. (laughs) Is this, is this the green tongues? Green uh, tongue, uh, <laughs> eyelid tremors. I My mean, gosh. it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And unfortunately, what happens uh, is that patients inadvertently or accidentally reveal 
their medical patient status to a police officer. And then if that police officer is so motivated, uh, can basically manufacture a, a DUI prosecution. Because if that officer uh, becomes aware that I'm a medical cannabis patient, then that officer certainly has reasonable, reasonable suspicion to believe that I will have, uh, uh, at the very least, THC metabolites in my blood. Right. And here's the real kicker. In Pennsylvania, we are what's called an implied consent state. You have no right to refuse a officer's request for a chemical test if they have uh, reason to suspect that uh, you may be impaired. And if they have probable cause to believe that you're impaired, they can get a court order to draw your blood even if you refuse uh, consent uh, at the hospital. And if you do refuse, you will automatically lose your driver's license in Pennsylvania for a year. So it is a, it's a, a very, very difficult situation for a patient to be put in that if I refuse, I automatically lose my license. If I consent, then I'm going to get charged with a DUI. And even if I don't consent, that officer might still be able to get a search warrant for my blood and charge me with a DUI, and I have that additional one-year license suspension. So somebody could be just driving home from work. Uh, maybe they use their medicine four days earlier. They're not under impairment in any way, shape, or form. Cop pulls them over. Maybe they did or did not reveal that they're a patient, a registered patient. Uh, and they're in a pinch now because if they get tested, it's in their blood. If they refuse to be tested, then the, the sanctions you just mentioned come tumbling down on them. It's like a, it's a no-win situation. It really is a no-win situation. And Fortunately, the majority of my clients who are medical cannabis patients who have been put in this position are eligible for a diversionary program, okay. alternative rehabilitative disposition. So it's very hard to say to that individual, you know what, let's fight the good fight. Let's you know, take this up on appeal and try to have Pennsylvania's zero tolerance uh, you know, statute thrown out because it's you know, discriminatory against uh, Pennsylvania patients. It's not based on rational policy, so on and so forth, when you know, they can walk away from it without an actual criminal conviction. But then the real challenge for that driver, that patient, is if they get another DUI uh, within 10 years, it's a mandatory 90-day jail sentence. If they get a third DUI during that period of time, it's one year in the, the Department of Corrections. So we you know, ratchet up the penalties in Pennsylvania very, very quickly. So ARD is not a real expungement. It's uh, law enforcement still knows that you had that DUI, and so if that second one happens, and again, if they're, they could be, it could be the exact same situation where they are still a registered patient, mm -hmm. pulled over again, tested again. And, you know, for patients who are in smaller communities where the police know everybody, if that, you know, the police department or if that officer is aware that you're a registered patient, that officer has a lot of ability to potentially, you know, pull you over, charge you with DUI, you know, constantly. You know, yeah. it is, uh, it's, a, it's a very chilling situation to be in. What I can say is that outside of my experiences with uh, uh, certain troopers in the Pennsylvania State Police, the majority of local law enforcement tell me, listen, your client didn't look impaired to me. They passed a couple of field sobriety tests, so I was not going to, you know, try to uh, jam them up with a DUI. So I think that's a reasonable approach, but we need to have that type of statutory protection. Uh, if you are using a Schedule II prescription, your doctor prescribes you Oxycontin, Xanax, uh, benzodiazepine, whatever, the law requires proof of impairment. Mm -hmm. And what I think the simplest answer is, to treat medical cannabis the same as a Schedule II controlled substance requiring proof of actual impairment. Mm -hmm. 
Is the green tongue thing nonsense? I never heard of that until I heard police were actually using it as a sign of uh, impairment of cannabis. I, it, it seems completely ridiculous. A green or chalky tongue is allegedly a sign of recent cannabis consumption. Uh, the Pennsylvania uh, Superior Court, in one case, did not permit a uh, state trooper to testify because that uh, trooper did not have the uh, requisite expertise uh, to testify that cannabis would uh, result in a green or chalky film on the tongue. Huh. So they can use it in order to justify re requesting a chemical test, but then they can't introduce that as evidence at trial. But again, we're zero tolerance, so it doesn't matter. Right. You know, they don't have to prove uh, uh, impairment. So we've talked about discrimination. We've talked about the zero tolerance DUI law. I do want to pull the scope back a little bit. If you can talk more globally, how well do you think Pennsylvania's Medical Marijuana Act is serving people? I think that it is serving people well in most respects, uh, with the exception, of course, uh, being our high price. Mm. You know, our medical cannabis products are expensive. Pennsylvania's uh, medical cannabis program passed a lot of costs onto license holders, mm -hmm. and license holders obviously are running for-profit businesses, so they have to uh, do right by their investors and uh, recoup that investment. The Department of Health, I think, is fairly receptive, but it's frustrating that we are now almost two years into the program. Uh, we're about three days short of two years of medical cannabis products being dispensed, and we still don't have all of the phase one uh, uh, cultivation and processing facilities up and running, mm. and very few of the phase two uh, cultivation and process processing facilities are, are, are up and running. Uh, dispensaries are opening. I think we've got a, over 70 dispensaries at this time. Mm. We've got over 200,000 patients registered with the program, but that's why we're having chronic product shortages. You know, we're adding patients, we're adding dispensaries, but the uh, license winners for cultivation and processing, you know, we're still, I think, only at 14 uh, operational facilities out of 25. And it doesn't seem that the Department of Health is doing much more than just simply waiting for them to become operational. Uh, I know that there's been a lot of litigation uh, involved uh, with people who did not win licenses, and perhaps the Department of Health is not interested in inviting additional litigation by threatening to revoke permits from uh, uh, license holders that are not uh, growing and producing product yet, but that's affecting patients, and it's affecting the cost. Uh, the Department of Health's mantra seems to be, you know, once you know, the program is fully operational, then if we need to come back and consider price caps or consider adding licenses or whatever the case may be, we'll do it at that time. Uh, but Pennsylvania patients need relief now, today. Can you define some of those terms? You just used the phase one cultivation and processing facilities. Um, yes. This is, uh, can you just to say what that is and explain what, where it should be versus, you know, what you just described is where it is. Under, under our uh, medical marijuana law, uh, it called for uh, initially making 25 licenses available for growing and processing medical cannabis products or medical marijuana products. What that means is the facility will grow the plants and then uh, either extract oil from the plants or uh, process the plants into capsules or tinctures. Uh, when our program uh, was initially passed into law, it did not permit consuming actual flower material. Right. So you know, the whole idea was grow the, grow the plants and then process them into either hash oil concentrates, um, liquid vape uh, cartridges, 
tinctures, pill form, or topical form. All 25 of those licenses have been awarded. They're awarded in two phases, phase one and phase two. Yeah. Uh, phase one initially, I think, was 13 growing processing licenses, and phase two had 12 uh, for a total of 25. Uh, the most recent round of Phase Two licenses were awarded in you know, January of 2019, or maybe even before that. Okay. So, you know, those facilities are now going on a year of having won their licenses, and the majority of them are still not growing plants or producing uh, products for sale at our dispensaries. All right. Well, there's still a lot of work to do. <laughs> yes. So now. On the positive side, what I can say is we have a very robust list of qualifying conditions. The Department of Health had been very responsive to advisory board recommendations to add opiate use disorder, Tourette's syndrome, uh, to add uh, anxiety, uh, which I think is really something that's going to help a lot of Pennsylvanians. The products that we have available to us are of very high quality. I'm a big fan of our liquid live resin uh, products that are being produced by some of our uh, license holders. A lot of patients uh, prefer uh, flour. I prefer hash oil concentrates. Mm. And from what I've seen so far, you know, some of our hash oil concentrates are, are very, very good, among the best that I've uh, experienced. And we have very robust uh, labeling so that mm. on our uh, medical cannabis products, we can not only see what the THC content is, what the CBD content is, but also what the terpenoid profile is. Okay. You know, uh, how much linalool or myrcene or carophyllene and it's these terpenes that have been identified as being as important to uh, the medical efficacy as THC and other cannabinoids. Okay, that's good to know. I think THC and CBD have become so mainstream, people generally know what that is. But uh, to say that phrase, that that uh, that term again, turn turn of uh, terpenes, terpenes, yeah, <laughs> or the terpenoid profile of the plant. Because uh, right, right. every different strain has a a, a different uh, terpenoid profile. I never liked science in school, but uh, when it comes to cannabis, I'll, I can learn a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> well, that's about as, as much biology as you're getting out of this lawyer. <laughs> right, right. Um, so we've talked about medical cannabis. Let's uh, pivot off of that and talk a little bit about the state of um, marijuana law in Pennsylvania outside of that arena. There is new data showing that arrests for marijuana possession were down statewide uh, in 2019 compared to 2018. It's still almost twenty thousand, I think. But why do you think that is? What What would be the possibilities for why arrests would be down for possession? In my opinion, when we legalized uh, medical cannabis, I think a lot of people didn't quite understand what that meant. They didn't understand that that meant you had to, you know, get a license to to get a recommendation from a physician to register with the program. So I have had officers coming up to me in 2017 saying, "Pat, you've got to, you know, tell your people that just because we have a medical marijuana law doesn't mean that it's a free for all." <laughs> you know, I walked up on a group of guys, you know, uh, smoking in a park and I said, "Wait a minute, what are you doing?" They're like, "Hey, marijuana's legal." <laughs> well, no, medical marijuana is legal, and they all said, "Well, I'm using it medically." And the officer was like, "Guys, that's not quite how this works." Right. Uh, I was glad that the officer did not charge uh, uh, the individuals, but I think that you know when you saw Pennsylvania becoming a medical cannabis state, different cities around Pennsylvania uh, passing decriminalization ordinances, legalization in other states, you know one state after another after another, either legalizing medical cannabis or legalizing cannabis as a whole. I think some people 
presumed or mistakenly as assumed that it wasn't a big deal in Pennsylvania mm -hmm. anymore. So I think that uh, in 2017 and 2018, you had people maybe acting a little more loudly than they uh, would otherwise have because they were under a mistaken impression that they were protected or that Pennsylvania had changed its laws or you know things along those lines. And after a couple of years of understanding that, yes, it is still you know, illegal, and the medical program is a restricted program. It's not you know, open you know, for everyone to say, hey, you know, I'm using this medically now. We're seeing a slight, uh, uh, a slight decline in overall numbers. I think we're down about, I think it went from about 22,000 to 20,000. Uh, but that's still a lot of people oh, being yeah. introduced to the criminal justice system every year over a you know, harmless, you know, non-toxic, uh, non-addicting plant. And can you say a little bit about what the repercussions are? If somebody gets arrested for possession, then what happens? Um, if if you're charged with a misdemeanor level offense, that goes on. Now it's a matter of public record. Uh, so merely being charged, if you were to apply for a job, apply uh, to public housing, um, and someone does a background check, they'll see that there's a controlled substances offense on your record. And that can be very chilling in and of itself. Mm -hmm. A conviction uh, can result in loss of employment, loss of uh, housing, inability to uh, access federally uh, subsidized student loans. Uh, a conviction could be used against you if you were going through divorce proceedings with an ex-spouse. And it's something that will be on your record for the rest of your days unless steps are taken either to get a pardon or to shield it from public view. So at the state capitol, we run into the law enforcement lobby from time to time. And the law enforcement advocates at the legislature, particularly among the police, tend to be rather old school and older in age as well. When I talk to you, when I hear you speak, sometimes it does seem like maybe you have fairly somewhat regular interactions with law enforcement. I have wondered if there is a backlash among law enforcement. I mean, we've, neither of us probably have any data, but just as anecdotally, what's your sense of where law enforcement's head is right now on cannabis? My sense is from the you know, the rank and file officers that I deal with, Pat, just legalize it already. We're tired <laughs> of dealing with this. You know, we don't want to be in the position of you know having to bust somebody. We're tired of defense attorneys harassing us. If, if we see the general trend that's uh, going on in the rest of the country, so let's just get it done already. But give us some better ability to detect DUIs. That's law enforcement's primary concern is they want to uh, ensure that they still have the ability to keep the roadways safe. In my opinion, they have those uh, techniques available to them right now. It's not like people were not consuming cannabis and operating a motor vehicle two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Right. They just were being very, very cautious about it. And the same thing uh, applies today. You know, I don't think it's realistic to think that there's going to be a spike in stone drivers. I think that the rate of cannabis consumers will remain pretty consistent. I don't think we're going to have a lot of people saying, oh, well, now that it's legal, I'm going to become a, you know, a regular cannabis consumer. You know, I think that law enforcement understands what's coming. They want it to, the change to be done responsibly. Uh, they want to make sure that their voice is heard, uh, especially about concerns uh, of DUI. Uh, and, you know, a lot of law enforcement officers, especially in urban areas, you know, see, you know, people at their worst sometimes. Right. And often, you know, cannabis can be viewed as contributing to maybe other, you know, drugs of abuse or not you know, becoming gainfully employed or things like that. But generally speaking, I think that police understand that 
the war on cannabis in Pennsylvania and across the United States is is coming to an end, and they would rather just get out, n- no longer be in the middle of it. So you've mentioned that several cities have passed decriminalization ordinances. One of them is Pittsburgh, and it's been several years since Pittsburgh passed their decrim ordinance. Uh, I know there's been some concern that city police are not utilizing it, and contrasting that with Philadelphia, where the decrim ordinance went into effect, their arrests went from several thousand a year to a few hundred. They're saving millions of dollars. Where do things stand right now with Pittsburgh's decrim ordinance? Is it working? No, it's not being used. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a freedom of information request out there to try to find out how many times it was actually used in uh, 2019. Uh, But our rates of charging people with uh, misdemeanor level offenses in Pittsburgh remains pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we charged around 700 in 2019. But one of the reasons that it's, I don't think, viewed as all that big of a deal by law enforcement is here in Pittsburgh and in Allegheny County, we will reduce that to a summary disorderly conduct. Mm. We will, if, if the most serious charge is marijuana paraphernalia and possession of a small amount of marijuana, we're not sending that to the court of common pleas level. So I think, you know, when that officer is trying to decide what to do, they're thinking, well, it's going to get worked out anyway. I'll write it up as a misdemeanor level complaint. You know, my sergeant will see that I'm, you know, out there trying to do something. And then, you know, I'll go into court. It'll get knocked down. The person will pay a fine and I'll be done with it. Unfortunately, that means that officer is potentially being paid overtime to go to court. It is another case on the docket that we don't need to deal with. And to the person being charged, they have to get fingerprinted, and if they then don't uh, uh, proceed with a expungement petition, that charge will be um, uh, on the publicly available docket for you know years and years to come. Yeah. So yes, officer, I appreciate the fact that I get a summary disorderly conduct and maybe a, fi- a fifty or a hundred dollar fine, but my client had to hire me or had to go to the public defender or hire another attorney, and now they're going to have to pay you know over two hundred dollars to file an expungement petition when you could have simply written them under the local ordinance. Well, I'm glad you said that because sometimes, often, people refer to downgrading uh, possession to a summary as decriminalization. It is an improvement, a slight improvement, but it still is a criminal record. It's still a summary offense. It's going to be on your record um, as opposed to, like you said, you could just get a ticket from your local officer, which is it's not going to show up on your record the way a summary offense does. Mm Mm-hmm. The city uh, records department said that they have until March 7th to comply. So I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, if anyone is actually using it. Right. Uh, when uh, we sat down with uh, City Brass, oh, my God, it was a year, year and a half, almost two years ago at this point, they uh, were very, very reluctant to uh, tell officers that they shall use this. Mm. To me, what that meant uh, was that uh, uh, the city brass did not want to get into a fight with the uh, uh, Fraternal Order of Police because city law enforcement does not like the mayor's office at all. Mm. And if they were told by the mayor's office through the chief of police and public safety that they shall use a local ordinance and potentially shall not, file uh you know state misdemeanor charges i could see that uh, that would be a big a bit of a brouhaha so i think that that's kind of why the city was not willing to use more forceful language in directing officers uh, about the the local ordinance and what they said to us at the time was give us some time to you know to change the culture a little bit we'll train new officers that this option is available to them and we'll try to change the culture 
from within the department without uh, you know, telling officers that they are not to enforce a state law. So it seems like it's an insider game right now. Is there any potential for groundswell within the city to see it actually enforced? The reason that we don't really have that much of a groundswell is because just like we said, we have de facto decriminalization. Mm-hmm. You know, misdemeanor charge will always get reduced to a summary offense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of what was going on in Philadelphia before their decriminalization ordinance, from what I understand from, you know, Chris Goldstein and Mike Whiter and, and uh, Nikki Allen Poe, is that in Philadelphia, if you were uh, caught with a small amount of marijuana, you were being arrested and processed and uh, having to post bond. And that was a very, very draconian system where you're arresting somebody, putting them in the Philadelphia jail, and you know maybe making them pay a $1,000 bond in order to get out. Whereas here, we don't arrest people. We'll send summons to appear for court. Philly was doing it differently, but that resulted in some real pressure on their jail intake system, on their bail people, you know, factors that we didn't have to deal with here. Right. It feels like we are making slow but steady progress on legalization, at least broadly, and if you look across the country. How are you feeling about the movement toward legalization here in PA? Do you think we're making progress? It's very nice that our Democrats, generally speaking, are 100% in support of full legalization here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I damn near fell off my chair when the Attorney General, Josh Shapiro, uh, released a statement in support of full legalization. I mean, that is Pennsylvania's top cop. Right. Uh, his office prosecutes large drug trafficking organizations. They go after uh, fentanyl. They go after methamphetamine. Uh, they go after people you know, purchasing on the dark web and then bringing it into uh, Pennsylvania. So if Pennsylvania's top cop feels comfortable saying that I fully support legalization, that to me is a watershed moment. You know, the attorney general came out and said it. Now, you know, some uh, speculate he may be running for governor and this may be, you know, political in nature. I don't care. Uh, the, The fact is I had the attorney general of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in September supporting full legalization. And we've got two comprehensive legalization bills, one in the House and one in the Senate. Derek Rosenzweig, uh, a few years ago, was successful in having marijuana legalization added to Pennsylvania's Democratic Party platform. Mm -hmm. So these are very significant uh, uh, strides. Um, The lieutenant governor has been outspoken in his support. His listening tour really energized a lot of people and gave a lot of Pennsylvanians, maybe for the first time, uh, the confidence to come out and express support for cannabis reform. The governor will sign a legalization bill if it hits his desk. But then we run into a solid red wall of Republican leadership in the House and the Senate that will not uh, touch these issues. And that's very, very frustrating because we are polling at over 60 percent in support of full adult use uh, uh, reform here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I believe that if you were to do a secret poll amongst Pennsylvania Republicans, that we would have some pretty significant support amongst our uh, uh, Republicans, especially maybe some of our younger, uh, newer Republican legislators and our more libertarian-minded legislators and our business development uh, Republicans. And the Republican Party is supposed to be the party of, you know, fiscal responsibility, business development, jobs. Uh, The marijuana industry across the country is, you know, one of the fastest-growing industries. We could add tens of thousands of uh, good-paying jobs here in Pennsylvania with full adult use reform. And so it is frustrating that Republican leadership will not 
you know, even talk to us about possibly moving forward with full adult use reform. So that leaves us with pushing for statewide decriminalization. Yeah. That so, was my next question for you. Go ahead. You know, even if we can't get full adult use right now, fine. Let's at least stop prosecuting people for possessing a small amount of marijuana and marijuana paraphernalia. Uh, as we alluded to earlier, 20,000 people in 2019 entered the criminal justice system for a small amount of marijuana. Criminal justice reform seems to have some real bipartisan support in Harrisburg right now. Well, what uh, signals reform you know, better or more effectively than stripping 20,000 people from the criminal justice system? Decriminalization has bipartisan support. It even has the support of the very conservative Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association. I was sitting next to uh, Rich Goldinger. He's the elected uh, district attorney in Butler County and past president of the District Attorneys Association. And he you know, reaffirmed you know, on the record that, yes, the District Attorneys Association supports decriminalization, opposes legalization, uh, but supports decriminalization. So that's you know, a, a good sign of progress as well. You know, let's at least get something that we can all agree on, and that is that we should no longer be charging people with misdemeanor-level offenses for you know, possession of a small amount of marijuana or marijuana paraphernalia. I would personally love or prefer to do D.C.-style uh, legalization where it's legal to possess and it's legal to grow a, a few plants, but I don't think that we would be able to win uh, majority party support uh, for that type of reform. I think that might be a bridge too far. But I'm still pitching it. When I met with some uh, Republicans last week, I'm like, here are the options, you know, decrim, where it's a 25 or $100 fine, uh, or here's what they're doing in Washington, D.C., nudge, nudge, wink, wink. They were more interested in the uh, the fine structure than full legalization or legalization in, in the, the Washington, D.C. model. But you know, it's, let's get this going. Let's talk about it. Well, you're getting at one of the things I wanted to ask you about decriminalization. That term is thrown around a lot. To you, is it uh, lowering the grading to a summary, or is decriminalization wiping the possession crime off the books so that there's no pretext for uh, – the police don't have that as a pretext for coming into contact with people, that there's no contact between people and the police because of marijuana possession? Exactly, and I think that decriminalization is a bit of a misnomer. Because if you still have a summary level offense, well, that's still a criminal offense. It's just not a misdemeanor. Uh, it still would put police in the position to seize your property, to issue a fine, and if you didn't pay that fine, potentially you could be incarcerated for it. So, you know, even though it's a summary level offense, uh, which is not uh, nearly as serious as a misdemeanor level offense, and a summary level offense can be expunged from your record uh, after five years. Uh, 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 from the date of conviction, it still is a, a, a uh, offense that's criminal in nature because it does allow police to seize property, to issue fines, and uh, potentially if that fine is not paid, you could have a uh, warrant issued for your arrest. So what I would prefer is what you described, which is there's absolutely no reason for police and citizens to come into contact with each other over cannabis, either the odor of cannabis or the sight of cannabis. You know, maybe your worst case scenario is, all right, uh, similar to an open container of alcohol. You can't walk down the street, you know, smoking pot. And if you do, then you're going to get, you know, an open container charge, but not a charge because you're in possession of weed. Uh, it's because you're openly consuming it. 
you've used the word cannabis throughout most of the conversation. Can you just get a quick explainer to folks as to why you use cannabis instead of marijuana? We've had this discussion internally here in our offices. Uh, cannabis sativa L is the, uh, the name of the plant that we are talking about, the marijuana plant. And it was always known as cannabis, either cannabis sativa or cannabis indica, which is a variety of the cannabis sativa plant, uh, until uh, the 1930s when uh, the war against cannabis uh, really you know, started to uh, get its legs. Uh, there was an individual by the name of Harry Anslinger, who was the director of the Bureau of Narcotics, the forerunner to the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration. And he, along with uh, William Randolph Hearst, decided to expose this deadly new drug that was being brought into the country over the southern border primarily by uh, uh, Mexican uh, uh, migrant workers. Um, Mexicans uh, were coming into the United States and bringing this plant with them that they would consume at the end of a hard work day. And this plant was known as marijuana. So the Hearst Corporation in its newspapers all of a sudden started splashing this word marijuana out there and how marijuana you know was turning uh, you know our youth into crazed uh, fiends and murderers and you know all this criminality associated with it and Harry Anslinger did not you know hesitate to play the race card and say that marijuana makes darkies think that they're the equal of the white man mm. and marijuana makes you know white women seek you know sexual relations with negroes mm. and marijuana smokers are either jazz musicians uh, filipinos or negroes mm. and in the 1930s no one had any idea that what he was talking about was cannabis that had been available medically in the United States for over 100 years at that point. Uh, you know, cannabis uh, tinctures and cannabis products were marketed to returning Civil War vets. Doesn't that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. you know, cannabis and cannabis uh, uh, medical cannabis products were in the uh, physician's desk, desk reference. They were part of the American pharmacopoeia. Uh, up until the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act was passed in, I think, 1937 as a result of uh, uh, Anslinger's very deceptive campaign and misleading campaign in Congress backed up by uh, Hearst's uh, yellow journalism. Now, why would Hearst you know, jump in on this? Why would Hearst even care? Well, the Hearst Corporation bought vast timber tracks in California, and a new, more efficient process was developed for processing timber into paper. Hmm. Hemp was also a leading uh, competitor for paper products. Eliminate the competition. Hearst is sitting there with vast timber holdings. I think it's important for folks to know that history. I mean, to, in the 21st century, it does seem like um, pro-cannabis consumers and advocates, you know, the, the, they own the word marijuana. But it is important for folks to understand that this has a rather devious history, the use of that term marijuana. Yes, and that's why when uh, Representative Wheatley introduced House Bill 50, his first legalization bill uh, a year ago, House Bill 50 would uh, also amend our Medical Marijuana Act to change the word marijuana to cannabis. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that gave uh, uh, soon-to-be former uh, Speaker Mike Terzai the opportunity to put that bill in the Health Committee, which was chaired by a uh, representative who voted against medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. So the chances of uh, her moving his uh, Representative Wheatley's bill through her committee is zero. So you are involved with Normal's Pittsburgh chapter. If folks want to learn more about Normal, where can they go? Whether it's a chapter, the national organization. Um, we have a website, pittsburghnormal.org. We have a social media presence on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
and our national uh, website, normal.org, and that's normal spelled N-O-R-M-L for National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Normal.org is an excellent resource for anything cannabis-related, you know, for uh, information on uh, laws state-to-state, uh, for information on which states are legal, for information on which states are medical, and what you know, the parameters of those state programs are. It's a one-stop shop. So for anyone who wants to educate themselves, you know, start with normal.org. Uh, join us over at pittsburghnormal.org. Uh, right now, we're not actively holding meetings. Uh, we're you know, more focused on lobbying and, and messaging, but uh, you know, the amount of information that's out there uh, is second to none right now. There is no reason that an individual uh, would say, oh, you know, I just don't have enough information about legalization. Whether you're pro or con, the information is out there. Well, Patrick, you're fighting the good fight. You're fighting the righteous fight. So thanks for taking the time. appreciate your insights. And, you know, I want to say to the ACLU, thank you, thank you, thank you for everything that you were doing uh, to advocate the rights of um, uh, medical cannabis patients. I know the ACLU has the lawsuit uh, out of uh, Lebanon County to protect patients on probation and their ability to utilize medical cannabis. And the ACLU also filed a, uh, uh, an amicus brief on behalf of a medical patient who's charged with DUI. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thank you. you know, I'm one lawyer here in Pittsburgh. I do, cannot possibly have the, uh, the scope or the resources that the ACLU does. So the fact that the ACLU is fighting alongside Pennsylvania patients, I cannot thank you enough. You're welcome, and I uh, hope we have success in the courts. Uh, seems like we have a lot cooking right now, a lot in the pipeline. So uh, here's to good arguing and great lawyering. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, thanks, Patrick. All right, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks to Patrick Nightingale of Pittsburgh Normal for the conversation and for his work. Patrick talked about several legislative issues. Those include House Bill 1480, which would change Pennsylvania's DUI law to require proof of actual impairment. House Bill 927 and Senate Bill 233, which would lower the grading for marijuana possession to a summary offense, and House Bill 2050, which would fully legalize cannabis in Pennsylvania. We will provide links to all of these bills in the show notes. The best way to support these bills is to call your state representative and your state senator to ask them to support those bills, too. Also, the news on ACLUPA's response to the novel coronavirus pandemic changes almost daily. Keep updated on what we're doing by following us on social media and by visiting aclupa.org slash COVID-19. And that brings episode 41 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.